This is Rugger Matrix America. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Alex Goff from Goff Rugby Report, joined as always by Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean. And the most exciting piece of news as we bring you Rugger Matrix America, brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. Most exciting piece of news is that Pat Clifton went to a hockey game because uh, we we've just been talking about you going to an NHL game. And Pat, have you been converted to the game on ice? I'll tell you what, I, 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 as a transplant living in St. Louis, if I had to be forced to go to a sporting event where I don't care who wins or loses, I would pick hockey over like a Cardinals game if they're not playing my Royals or the Rams game if they're not playing my Chiefs. So I think live hockey is pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, if I, if I had to go to a game where I just didn't care who won, I think I'd pick hockey over baseball or football. Uh, you know, I, I I like it. I I think it's uh, I don't know, Bruce. You're in hockey country, but uh, that's one of the one of the great team sports. Not as good as rugby, but it's one of the great team sports. Yeah, keeping white people relevant in a uh, major sport in America since Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. And... I'll tell you what is insane. They they literally. I I think the the shortest amount of time I saw somebody spin on the ice was 37 seconds from the time he subbed on to the time he subbed off. That was a little rough for me to wrap my head around. How you could be tired? Ninety, 90 <laughs> seconds is considered a really long shift. To you know, sometimes they'll mention on TV like he's been on the ice for over two minutes, and uh, it is. It's kind in a way for that way. It's it's kind of like sevens in that, uh, and, and when there was that attempt, and I don't know if they're still trying to do it, the attempt of doing the hour long sevens game. Um, that's kind of the only way you can do it is to have shifts. People run on and off because you're sprinting the whole time. So is that, are, are they still, are, are, is, uh, the CRC or whoever trying to, um, still push this, uh, hour long super, super sevens? Seven? Yeah. There's still, uh, it's still in the works. Yeah. I, I tell you, I would just kick the whole time. Just kick, tire them out. <laughs> just to get the other. Yeah. Tired, that's, yeah. A, that's what I would do. Um, but uh, we've got some stuff to talk about that's not hockey and not Super 7s, because Super 7s is kind of a funny name. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, well, national team stuff, because uh, as we were talking about just now, well, it was a great week for U.S. national teams, uh, the, if we extend it out really to two weekends. But uh, the, the USA men uh, defeated Canada 30-22, to fourth time in a row. I don't think that's ever happened before in the ARC. Uh, put them in a really good position to talk about winning the competition. They needed a little help. That happened this last week. Uh, we saw the Eagles destroy Chile 64 to nothing. Uh, the I think it's the third biggest blowout the USA has ever had of any team. And uh, at the same time, Argentina, while they beat Uruguay, failed to get a bonus point. That puts the USA uh, in first place. Uh, and then the USA under-20 team, uh, the boys, the men, uh, against any real expectation, beat Canada 19-18. Uh, to on a last-second penalty goal from 54 meters out uh, to qualify for the uh, Junior World Trophy. So uh, U20s first, I think. Uh, and uh, first of all, the kick. Now, now Ben Seema's, we have known Ben Seema is a great kicker. Uh, he made some great kicks for the U20s the year before. He helped Gonzaga High School win a national championship, partly with his kicking. Um, he also missed... He missed a long-range one, uh, and he missed one to win the game, essentially win the game a, a few minutes before that was closer but at an angle. Um, but a good goal kicker has got to be able to forget about that stuff, turn around and, and hit the clutch ones. And 54 meters out, straight in front of the post, um, that is, I mean, that's a piece of skill that's pretty astounding. Uh, is that... Guys, I, I'm curious about your experience with this. Is that a, is that a unique skill? Is that a once in a, a a blue moon kind of skill that someone has, or is that simply a skill that we can develop in more players if we just had them practice more? I think it goes deeper than just practice more, right? I think you got a certain amount of that is going to have to be God given. A certain amount of it's going to have to be practiced more. A certain amount of it's going to be uh, you know concerted strength and conditioning towards that skill. 
and uh, a certain amount of just, you know, being a good athlete. There's a lot of guys who can kick the ball really far, but not very straight. Um, he was able to kick the ball straight from 54 meters. So uh, definitely something you can cultivate, and you can find somebody who's got the ability and cultivate it. But that said, it's still pretty rare, right? I mean, if it weren't rare, Ben Sima wouldn't have gotten – he wouldn't have been in senior Eagle camps already. He wouldn't have been in – you know, not to talk down Ben Sima. He's a fine rugby player. But if you take away his kicking ability and the, that leg that he has, I don't think he's any better than any other fly half that – you know, that you would consider for the U20 team. Um, so if it weren't for that ability and the fact that it is rare, um, we probably wouldn't necessarily know Ben Seema's name, but we do because because it is pretty rare. So you got to have the, the guy who's got all those those, those born-with tools and, and be yeah. able to cultivate it. Seema's a, a skinny guy. He looks fragile, although he's not. He's one of those skinny guys who's pretty strong. Uh, he's, he's a pretty brave guy in contact, too. But you're right. A coach looks at that and says, he's not very big and he's not very fast. And uh, maybe, maybe we, maybe, maybe the name Max Deotreville comes back up again, but uh, he's not necessarily blow you away athletic. Um, so you're right. If you take away the kicking, then coaches start to look at that. But because he's got the kicking, then you start to look at the positives. What else can he do for me? And in fact, not only did he kick that kick, he set the kick up. Because they uh, they received a kick that they had the ball, uh, it was past Asima in the in the middle of the field, and he was about oh he's about two or three meters inside his, the ten meter line, so he's about twelve meters inside the USA half, and he put his head down and he went right up the middle as far as he could to set a ruck. Now the hope was partly I think he was thinking this they're going to commit a penalty. I'm close enough now that I can kick it. That was his thought, is I'm going to get close enough because I'm going to win the game with a kick. And uh, you can't coach that kind of mentality. I thought it was interesting. Well, first off, this is one of the great weekends in American rugby history. We beat Canada for the fourth time in a row, and which, as you said, was unprecedented offline. And the, um, the under-20s won against all odds, really. The coaching staff and the players weren't given the, the best lead up going in. They made the most of it. They did exactly what they needed to do, and they uh, and they won the game. Sema has some really long limbs, and that kick was fantastic. the The play that you're talking about leading up to it was interesting too, because as he, he went in, went into contact, got up and tried to fight over the ball that he had he had played back himself. So he had gotten to the Instead of a, a traditional layback, he had gotten to his feet and fought. And you saw that in the Eagle game, too. The, um, the hooker early doors had done the exact same thing. And I think that's going to come into rugby a lot more. Now, you're going to see players going down, especially if they can get behind the guy who tackles them. They're going to start to get to their feet and fight over that next guy instead of giving that poacher an opportunity to get at the ball. So... It was actually a very good play on all ends. So that was uh, that kick was brilliant, and I there are very few people on the planet that can do that. Johnny Wilkinson probably wouldn't make that kick. He doesn't. There's a lot of teams that have long range kickers, and then they have their short range kickers. Wilkinson's range increased as he got a little bit older, but he, he wasn't a huge long range kicker early in his career, and. Even through his, his greatness in the World Cup, he wasn't a massive long-range kicker. He was just a very consistent dead-eye kicker. It's an extremely rare thing to be able to kick a 54-meter kick, which is close to what would be an NFL record. It's a little bit different because you don't have rushers coming at you. The other part of it that's pretty incredible is the fact that he did it in the 80th minute and – Another part that was, if you watch the video, Lance Connolly has it posted on Facebook, it, and it, there's a lot of people who posted it, there's a couple of that, 10,000 likes. But when the penalty happens, everybody on the team is like, go for goal. Yep, immediately. Like, they have it. it wasn't kick to touch. I, I think that the referee was shocked. I think the opposition was shocked. The entire U.S. team, there was no doubt. They're going for goal. Right. You heard it immediately, points, points. Do it. They knew it. They had. Uh, they had, and that was the. Uh, 
I, I wrote about this, and it was kind of funny that the the coaches had a thing in in training. They they said, uh, "All right, uh, we're going to have Seema kick a fifty meter penalty goal. If he if he misses, then the rest of you players, uh, all of you players, have to do the fitness circuit again. And if he hits it, then the coaches will do the fitness circuit." And the player said, "Yeah, no problem." And Seema missed it, and the coaches look around. And they say, "All right, double or nothing." And Seema hits it and turns around and says. Don't give me a second chance. Don't ever give me a second chance. There and the players were no hesitation to take double or nothing. They had complete faith in him, uh, and that's what Seema talked about with me. Was uh, I mean, he seemed really touched in how much faith they had in him. But it's it's huge. It's huge to immediately no argument points. We want it. Impressive. Uh, what 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 about the. Uh, what about the build-up to this team? You mentioned this a little bit, Bruce, uh, to this game, because you know this has been a question mark team for about two years. Uh, you know, we, we've had a problem with the build-up to the U twenty games for a couple of years now, changing in coaches, not getting uh, straightened out uh, in time, no real cohesive plan. Uh, this time, I guess it turned out to be a little bit better. I think the result was a little bit better. I think that the way the coaches handled it, they just said, this is the hand we've been dealt. And they accepted it and did their best with it. It wasn't a great lead up. It was the way they handled not a great situation was handled very well. So that's a testament to the coaches, a testament to the players, and a testament to everybody. That this That's made... That made this so much more impressive to me. I nobody expected them to win. Yeah, so it's pretty awesome. I, I think it was a great accomplishment. Well, they 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 had some key players who are coming back, uh, which was good. I think that um, JD Stevenson, uh, you know, like I said, did a good job because he just put his head down. And the other thing is Stevenson is the, the the clarity of just saying he's the interim head coach. He actually, I don't think he minded that. Um, and I asked him uh, if he thought he should be back as the coach the rest of the time. He's like, I don't know. He's not. It's, it's not like he's wedded to it because he knows that there's there are other uh, there are other decisions to be made there. So um, I, th- I think if you go in there with the right attitude, right, and then you uh, you get the players to agree with you. That this is their attitude, and said we don't we don't have a bunch of build up games or anything like that, or you know they scrimmage with the Austin Blacks and stuff like that, and and I guess they scrimmage with Life University at one point. Um, you know, don't don't lament it, just keep going. Uh, tactically, but I, it wasn't it wasn't a flashy team. They didn't really get a heck of a lot going. Um, they did get one try. Um, so th- this is not a polished team. What did you see? What did you guys see that, that was either good or or not good? I mean, they were right there, right? I mean, Malon Algebori got held up three times. So they, they were right there to score some, some, some tries. Obviously, it wasn't the dynamic uh, kind of attack that we saw from the senior team, but uh, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't completely stagnated. I, look, it's, these teams are very tough to put together. And even when you look at their – I think they scrimmage with Lindenwood. I don't know that they scrimmage with Life. I was at, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, Lindenwood. you're right, Lindenwood. Was, yeah, an which was uh, another point to be made. I mean, when they made, named J.D. The, the interim – I'm not saying that he wouldn't have done this as an assistant coach. I don't want to insinuate that. But if they hadn't had a coach on the staff who just happened to have a field that he could pretty much get whenever he wanted and, uh, you know, access to some infrastructure and some – some facilities, uh, then they may not have had a second assembly whatsoever. Um, so just a stroke of the luck there. I mean, USA Rugby didn't do a whole lot to facilitate, as I understand it, that second um, little, what they call it, I think they call it like a matriculation camp, um, where they got to scrimmage Lindenwood University. So, um, you know, tip of the cap to that, like you said, taking the, the coaches being as creative with what they had as they could. Um, but, 
you think about it, I mean, Louis Mulholland wasn't in that camp. He didn't scrim against Linden University, and he comes in, and all of a sudden he's starting for the, the side against Canada. So things like continuity and, and having a structured pattern of play, pretty tough to deal with. Um, you know, Lecky Fotu wasn't there either. He ended up playing some good minutes in that second half and um, being a difference maker down the stretch. So obviously very tough under the circumstances. So I wouldn't hold it against them that they didn't quite – uh, look fluid. Um, they managed to grind out the W and and do what they needed to do to get it. And it took some pretty brilliant individual performances. I thought Hunko had a great game. Um, Dion Mikesell came up with a couple of big tackles. I thought Maylon was very dynamic when he carried the ball, other than not being able to touch it down when he crossed the line. And obviously, Seema had a good and, game. Uh, so Brian Hannon, gotta say, gotta give it up for Brian Hannon, the inside yeah, he's center, a a player because uh, he's a fly half. And and the tackles he made, it's not like he made one tackle that made you sit up and say, oh, what a hit. It was like he made six of them. Uh, and and he needed to. And that, that, I mean, this is, this is one of the things I really enjoy about uh, USA versus Canada at the age grade level is they actually embrace it. They actually understand that level of, of rivalry the players do. And when when they get in there and they embrace the physical nature of it, uh, you know, it's a very special thing. And um, I was talking to John Mitchell uh, before the Canada game, and I, you know, I just said, "Good luck against Canada." And he said, "Yeah, I hear it's a big rivalry." And I just said, "It's it's a huge rivalry. It's it's as it's as big as." you know, any U.S. Canada rivalry in any sport, and he's uh, sort of like a Bledisloe Cup thing. And I said, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, the 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 respect the respect tinged with hatred. And I'm just really, really happy to see someone like Brian Hannon embrace his role. You're an inside center, and you're probably not going to get the ball a great deal. Um, we just need you to tackle lights out, which is exactly what he did. I was I was unable to see the game, but I, my friend did see it. And he also had a guy on the on the team, and so he had seen the playbook, and he said that the defensive playbook was a lot shorter, you know, obvious, it was a lot shorter and had a bit of clarity to it. And the attacking playbook has a lot in it, and there's a so there's a lot of different things, and it's always difficult to get attacked together. So I think that's probably part of the reason why they weren't fluid, and part of the reason that their defense was pretty strong. And considering they got apparently knocked around in the scrums and lineouts and set piece and stuff that those things are relatively easily fixed in terms of set piece. So they can become pretty good, pretty quick. And then once they get their, you know, once they get their attacking structures under their legs, then if their defense was solid and their set piece wasn't, and their attacking structures lacked fluidity, I think that you have the makings of something you can build on. If, if your defense is poor, and and then you're really are, are going to be hurting because it's hard to put defensive structures and tack. Like if guys can't tackle, then <laughs> difficult to teach them how to do that. But if guys miss time things, but you have a lot of really good athletes, you could kind of fix that timing down, and you can cull a lot of the things that you don't want to have in your attacking structure out of the way and get them. I think they can be in a pretty good spot going into the world cup. They handled this fantastically well, given their, given the ever they, they handled this as well as they could. And congratulations. It was one of the biggest weeks in U S rugby in quite a while. Well, yeah, that was a, it was, it was great. It was a great game and, and great to see the, the young players come through that way. Uh, by the way, uh, the junior world trophy, which will be in Harare, Zimbabwe, um, in, and that'll be in the April. So these these kids got to we've got to turn around and produce a team and get that team ready uh, real quick. Uh, this is an eight team tournament. The other teams uh, we've got USA, and then the other teams are Fiji, Hong Kong, Namibia, Samoa, Spain, Uruguay, Zimbabwe. Now. I've I've seen the U20s play several times. They could finish last in this tournament. They could also win it. It's that kind of thing. Uh, um, Fiji is really, really tremendous. Samoa won it last year. Uh, USA won this 
in 2012, but um, and and their you know th their their top point scorer there, in case you forget, was Madison Hughes, uh, who's now captain of the Sevens team, uh, Kingsley McGowan, who started for the the full Eagles, uh, uh, was on that team. Uh, Mike Teo, who started for the full Eagles on Saturday, was on that team. Uh, that was a serious uh, group of players. But the year before that, in pretty against pretty much the same group of team group of teams, the USA finished seventh out of eight. And the game they played to finish seventh was against Zimbabwe, and they won by one point. So that that's the kind of thing that I'm you know. It's great. It's great that they qualified, but playing in this tournament, it's it's not a gimme at all. Well, I think that's the point I was trying to make is, you know, a lot of these nations are in the same way. You think Spain spends months together in preparation? I mean, and I'm not I'm not trying to take away um, all the other parts of the game, the coaching, the the strategies, um, the the other role players, but. I think these all-star events, these U20 teams, especially at the second tier, um, where there's next to no, you know, uh, meeting time or together time or actual training time, I think it, a lot of times it's just being about the horses. And you mentioned the horses they had in 2012 when they won it. Those are some really good horses. They've got some good horses this time around. Um, Hunko being probably leading the pack there as a guy who can do something. I was impressed with Brennan Falcon as a guy who is just physical on the field. Um, so I, I think that a lot of times in, these, these, in this specific setup, it's going to come down to how many playmakers you have in a game and how many they make more so than who the better rugby team is per se. And I think 2012, is you say that, you mentioned those players that, that bore out there, and I think that might bear out here. How, how good are their their best players this year compared to the best players on the other teams in a given year. Uh, I just want to correct myself. Uh, just uh, Samoa won it in 2014. They didn't win it in 2015. They went up to the Junior World Championships in 2015. Georgia won it last year. They beat Canada in the final. So, so the other thing is that USA just beat the team that finished second last year. So that was what I was going to say. Is apparently the Canadian players are together quite a bit. So the actual qualifying is a much bigger accomplishment than how they, I think that given the teams that you had mentioned, we would look to be able to be in the top four, which you would think they'd come third, third at the worst. So you can, you can look at, that's a really good possibility of winning it. They do have an uphill battle against Fiji and they would, Samoa's in it. So they would have an uphill battle against Samoa. But that's still, they, they're capable of being both. And we have, hey, we, you know, we just beat Canada. So without any kind of preparation. Now they know who they're going to be dealing with. And, and the guys are going to be really focused on doing it. So it should be a really great time. The uh, ideal, I think, is to finish third or second, uh, not to win it. Because winning it means that you go to the world championships the next year and um for the most part teams finish last there and get slammed and it's just i, I don't know i don't know if I it's really disagree. yeah i think that the idea is to win it because when you go to the junior world championship you're on you're seeing players that you're gonna play against as as a senior player and you're seeing future stars and you're seeing that they put their pants on one leg at a time you're seeing that they're your size. You're seeing that they're your speed. They may be a little bit better. They may be a little bit more cohesive than you. But you are learning what it takes to win at that level. And we're capable of – we're not capable of winning the under-20 junior world championship by any stretch. But we are capable of winning a game. And that's all you need to do is to stay that, alive. That's, that's, that's go back to my point. I mean – Let's call them the big three at this point, right? Like Hughes, Teo, and who's the other guy you mentioned? And Kingsley McGowan. McGowan. Yeah. Okay, so they win it in 2012. Any of them part of the team in 2013? No. Okay, so the team that was actually good based on the horses that they had goes to the 2013. Anybody from the 2013 team in the full Eagles yet, or anywhere close to it? Because I can't think of anybody off the no. top of my head. Not so that team's devoid of. of horses, and then they get run by embarrassing scores. I mean, 
that's U20. So the team that you play, the team that has three future Eagles on it, is not the same team that plays the next year in the competition they qualified you for. Right. And I, I, to be honest with you, I think the, the 2013 result did more to hurt the program than it did to help it. I, I think I would – so you saw Moto's offload to London in the, in the senior game. Moto played on that team. Yep. That got That's, true. That's true. So the, the reality is that you could either be afraid of the competition or you could relish the competition. And the way it should go is that they should relish the competition and they should be looking to take that opportunity to grow into a first-tier country. That, that's, that's what I would I'm not – I'm not saying you don't play to win and they, you know, look, if I had the chance to play against the All Blacks, I would take it knowing full well I would don't belong on the field, but I'd take it just to say I did it, right, and to, to see how you stack up against the other team. I'm not saying they don't try and win. I'm not saying that they go to the Junior World Championships, they don't be excited about it and try and equip themselves as best as possible. I'm just saying that this whole promotion relegation of the U20s uh, is just, I mean, it's a pretty big joke. It's kind of like when the USA South used to make if you finished division first in Division One or Division Two, you had to go up to Division One. I mean, it's just untenable. Well, no, I, I, I think they keep batting them back down like a whack a mole down to the Junior World Trophy every year. I think I think you make a point about the whole idea that that the the players that get you there aren't the players that play in it, and I think that for the for the most part, it doesn't matter for the big teams because they've got they've got another group coming up. Um, you know, maybe they miss a couple of players, but they got another group coming up. That's, Whereas for us, Madison Hughes is a once in a generation well, under twenty players. The, the idea is to get it so it's not that case, and I think that part of that is. Uh, I mean, we complained about it at the time, twenty thirteen. The infrastructure, making sure you had the coach and the the system in place, uh, long term, so that uh, you you really still have to do some recruiting on the U twenty team. Uh, for the players and also with the coaches, and and what happens if if major coaches of college teams see that something good has happened and they're more inclined to perhaps uh, make it so that some of their players can go to the world championships? It all it all hinges on let let's say they win, let's say they win in April. In uh, in Zimbabwe, it all hinges on what happens right after that. Is you turn around and say, "Who's our coaching team?" Not necessarily a head coach. Forget about that. The coaching team. What's our process? And then tell everybody what that is, and try and get on top of it as soon as possible. And we didn't do that uh, in 2013 because the thought was that it was going to be a lot of resources for not much uh, payoff, and this time. Maybe different. Well, I'm as you guys know, and I'm sure any listener at this point who doesn't know already. I'm just not a proponent of the U20 program. I I don't think it works for the United States, and I don't blame those coaches. I don't blame you know the fact that there weren't any Central Washington players, any St. Mary's players, any uh, Cal players, any BYU players. I I don't blame those coaches. I mean, you look at Arizona lost what 61 to was like 10 to Cal or something like that. And Arizona's given up four players to the U20 team, and Cal's given up none. So if I'm Sean Duffy, and I don't know what kind of Cal side they trotted out, if it was 61-12. Bet, it, was, it was a mix. I know it was a mix. but uh, I know it was a mix because yeah. they played two games on the weekend. Right. But if I'm Sean Duffy and I'm thinking, okay, well, what if I insert these four U20s players, which probably are you know, legitimate contributors for my program, and I lose 42-22 to 22 to Cal? When you're used to use, losing 50, 60, 70 to Cal, uh, and you have the opportunity to maybe lose by 20 to Cal, it, maybe it starts to seem like it's, it, it'd be nice to have them in your program. And Central Washington, and that's a varsity program now. They have some aid that they're giving out. The school's investing in the rugby program. Do you think the, the athletic director's on board with losing his players for I mean, I don't know how much time or how many potential games you're missing by going to Zimbabwe? But let's say you're losing at least one potential game for the qualifier, and then I don't know what two or three or four games. Maybe you know off the top of your head, but are the athletic directors? You're and, you're, and, you're, you're know, missing the playoffs. I mean, you're missing the you, end of the that's season. Right. You're missing. I mean, if, if you make the D1A uh, playoffs or if you're in the varsity cup, you miss it basically. That's right. So I I, I have no. We're not even putting our best foot forward 
in terms of the players even close to it at this point. Um, so I just don't. I but just don't see, see that we're so getting that, the, I'm not saying there isn't value in it. We're just not getting enough value for what we put into it. That's exactly why we should be doing it, though, because it's not about uh, players from Central Washington or Cal or BYU. It's about, in this case, it, it ends up being about players who are playing at Life West or on on a club team. Uh, you know, David uh, David Tamala is playing Life West and and, and uh, now on the national team. And what do you do with him? But uh, um, it, it's about players who are not in these programs still giving them an elite step th- step through the system so that they can come out and and do something special. I guess. And there were a number of guys like that, right? But a number of those guys are also in places where they're playing pretty high-level, you know, rugby. Um, well, yeah, so but it's it's, not it's, like it's, it's, this is better. You can't play pretty high-level rugby without the U-20s. And let's be honest, if the U-20s don't win this game, all the high-level rugby they get the entire year is this game. I think they're going to play the Argentine, uh, like U-19s or U-20s that are coming through. So don't sit here and tell me that one possibly two games a year, and now that we're going to the Junior World Trophy because we qualified. I mean, don't tell me that last year the crop of guys that didn't aren't playing college rugby or not playing in the high-level college rugby games, uh, that got so much development value out of the one game that they played in 2015 that it made it worth it. I just don't buy it. Right. Well, they played two, but... Uh, um, the, the two. They, they, right, they played the two. two. But uh, yeah, I, I would say that they do. I, w- I would say that the, there's still... A value in taking a, a kids who are not necessarily um, going through the, the the silver spoon pathway and giving them something that it's not just the game; it's the assemblies. Uh, if it's done right, obviously. well, that's my point. And, that's I, I'm with them. I'm not saying abandon those kids, but I'm also not saying let's chuck the money into. Uh, look, if there was a U20s camp, I'd be all for that. Um, it was longer if they could meet for three weeks and actually get some development instead of meet for a week and try to figure out how the heck they're going to win a game. I, I think that gives you an immense amount of value for, you know, probably somewhere near the same dollar, and I'd be all in on that. That's boring. Boring. One of the reasons in the past was that they didn't give any resources to the program that Scott needed to run it, and it wasn't like he was asking for a lot because he wasn't. And Ray wasn't asking for Ray, this. Scott Lawrence and Ray Laner weren't asking for a lot to run it either. The fact of the matter is, no matter how you slice it, in rugby, the under twenties is the only age grade program where we compare apples to apples, and we're not able to lie to ourselves about our results. Period. And if we think that, here, why is that important? I think that comparing yourself at the highest level of competition is important. But that's I that's what the senior national teams for. That's why they're called Pat, tests. I, well, you got you got to be ready before that. Pat, I fully understand where you're coming from. However, I disagree with you. <laughs> but which is fine, and I and but that doesn't mean that you're not that that your that your uh, your argument doesn't have value because it has an immense value based on the culture of American rugby. They could also play in the fall in the ACRC sensibly like any human being would do, and everything works out. But that's, that's beside the point. We, don't, we certainly wouldn't want anyone to do things properly. But let's go. now we can go in and say, if we want to win, I think we're better off winning with guys who are possibly not silver spoon guys, as, as Alex would call it. I would rather have some big-ass brothers and some big-ass hard-nosed hillbillies and some big-ass hard-nosed Samoan kids who would love to kick the living snot out of college kids all day long. That's what I would want. I, I mean, I wouldn't want a white guy on a team who hasn't thrown 5,000 bales of hay in the course of a little bit of time. And other than that, I just want big brothers and big Islanders on the team. That would be my team. Beat us now. We're going to play a uniquely American brand of rugby. 
and it's going to involve laying your ass out. I, I, that's what I would do. I, I don't know. Alex, you're probably editing that out. Maybe. No, not really. Maybe some of it. I, actually, I hey, mean, look, some of it. I mean, I'm honestly, saying, yeah. Like I was going to say, my problem here is we're not selecting those big brothers. I know we're not. not, and I'm not trying. Well, to, I'm not trying okay, to make exceed, it a knock uh, on on, that, on JD Stevenson and, and just him. But how is Jihad? You going to tell me Jihad Kabir is not one of the top twenty six under twenty players in the United States? He shows up to camp and you chuck him at wing. I don't I, believe that. I didn't. I'm not telling JD is obviously a highly accomplished coach. He did what he could with what he had in the time he had it. We don't have any kind of a a high-performance identification program that's set up to do anything. We, we, I'm saying that you got to start somewhere. Like you got to go find people who can play, and then you got to yeah. get them to enjoy. The, look, well, I need to clarify because you know there are some guys on the U20s. There's Maylon Algebori, who's African American. There's Dion Nightfell, who's um, also African American, and then Lorenzo Thomas, who you know. Is African American who obviously had the uh, the big try against Canada and um, has been a breakout star. You know, caught all the Eagles right after and scored a big try against uh, Chile and played really well. So that actually, Pat, that's kind of an interesting thing because we really haven't talked about uh, Lorenzo Thomas. But out of this whole U twenty thing, when you jump ahead to the Chile game, which was you know sixty four nothing, a blowout, everything, but. Here's a guy from the U-20s a week later starting for the Eagles, 19 years old. He scores a try. Uh, that's pretty fantastic. Well, it's great. Um, you know, it, it, it's fantastic. But, it's, I mean, how rare is that, right? I mean, you haven't seen much of it. Um, I don't know how much more of it we'll see going forward. You think about all the things that kind of had to – all the stars that had to align for that to happen. Um, will they align like that again? And – um, you know, I think we may already be seeing that John Mitchell is going to take us from one players, um, more so than other coaches in the past. But, um, you know, you had to have some, some injuries along the way for Lorenzo to get the call up. And it's, yeah. and it's worked out really well so far. Um, I well, just wonder you, if that's repeatable. Yeah. How, how frustrated do you get when, I mean, we, we especially happens in like the sevens where we, we're talking about USA players who are 22, 23, 24, and they're like, they're young and they're just getting their chance and they go out there and they make mistakes. And, or, and then Australia shows up with a bunch of 18 year olds and beats them. And the 18 year olds seem to be, you know, they're completely unfazed about the fact they're playing in front of tens of thousands of people. It'd be yeah, nice. I, it'd be nice if we I, had more people like that. It would be nice. I mean, I guess you just look. That Tulsa Union team that Lorenzo Thomas came from, Malon Algebori came from, Chance Linguski, who's another G20. I mean, that I've seen them play several times last year, and that may be the best high school team ever assembled. Um, so it, it's kind of one of those things where did we catch lightning in a bottle with that group? And a guy like Lorenzo Thomas, who was going to Air Force to play football, um, it was that athlete. Did we kind of catch lightning in a bottle there? Um, uh, because well, I we did. you, you, you mentioned early in this show that Madison Hughes was a once in a generation player. Maybe, maybe if we do have, and we are talking about college teams, developing young players, um, right. and obviously union really love that program, but you know, Lindenwood jumping in and saying, Hey, come play rugby with us. Dion Mikesell. Hey, don't worry about, you know, do you, are you bouncing football or rugby? Come play rugby with us. They're they're sort of at that coal face trying to keep those players, and then making them available. Um, maybe maybe we do we don't have a once in generation player. Maybe it's once every three or four years. Yeah, yeah we'll see. I mean, that's a big jump, right? When you go from playing you know, the Bixby Spartans is your is the toughest game of your year, and then you jump to um, you know you're playing Canada U twenties, and then the next game you jump to. Uh, a full blood national team. I mean, that's that's a big jump that I don't know that everybody can make, but Lorenzo certainly has made it pretty well. Yeah, well, at least it was Chile. It wasn't Australia or something, so that's one thing. Um, right. About the Chile game, uh, it, it seems fair to say, you know, I, I, I was very pleased with a lot of things we saw from the USA team. There were some things that, if you want to be picky, uh, you know, they, they didn't look so good at the beginning of the second half, things like that, but... 
Um, you also have to remember that Chile was kind of beat up. They really haven't had this kind of experience where they play week in, week out. Um, USA a little bit fortunate, but even so, it's kind of nice to see them put the foot on the neck and keep it on there all the way through a game. Oh, it's huge. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about 67 nothing to South Africa and all the, you know, uh, more optimistic people were saying, well, yeah, there's only, you know, a two-try game at halftime. And and I was sitting there saying, yeah, but 64 nothing, 64 nothing. That's right. So, or 67 nothing, 67 nothing. So I don't get to say that and then not say the same thing in a positive light for the Eagles. I mean, when you win the way that they did, um, you know, first half, Dan, he did a lot of things really well. And I think they played really well. And, and look, I'm, I'm being shown the light here. And I know that we have to take a, a, a little bit of a pill and, and remember who we're playing, but the, the pool is deeper than I would have ever guessed. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's been proven. You know, Brody Orth is a guy that that guy can't be an eagle. I played against Brody Orth and know him really well. He, I was damn dead wrong. <laughs> you know, if you'd have told me last year when I was watching Lorenzo Thomas play the Junior Blues for the Harder <laughs> America tournament that he'd be playing, he'd be getting his first cap in less, you know, in what six, seven, eight months. I'd say you're insane. So I, I think that if, if nothing else, um, you know, we're finding out that maybe we're a little bit better than we thought we were in terms of how many international level players we got. And we we Which is, a, f- a few it wasn't lost that long ago that Chile did beat the United States. That's true. That is true. I and, mean, what and, two generations of Eagles ago are we talking about? Uh, Dan Lyle and Dave Hodges were on the were on the team that lost to Chile in Santiago, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, there are some lost souls, right? Like, uh, I mean, Nate Brakeley. I wasn't. I I kind of wasn't sure if we were going to see him or uh, David Tamalau, who uh, went off to play football and then came back. Guys who sort of disappeared, but. They went and found him, brought him in, it, and at least let's see. And kudos to Matt, to Matt because he's the one who really pieced this team together. I mean, David Williams has been around and knew some of these guys, but did David Williams dig up David Tamwell? I'm going to go ahead and guess that was more of a Magleby. Um find. You know, those sorts of things. But maybe I'm wrong there because he was in the age-grade system, and I'm sure Davey worked with him at some point. But um, you know, those two guys really deserve a ton of credit for pulling these guys together. And... Who cares if they were forced to pull them together? They did it, right? It wasn't like they picked David Tamalau over. You know, they did pick him over. Like they picked him over Kyle Thompson. Kyle Thompson had a handful of caps. Yep. They himself available for the ARC, and they went with David Tamalau, and they went with some other guys who were really performing really well. So they did make some decisions, even though some were forced on them, and uh, it's, it's panning out. Did we did we think that Joe Taufete could? perform as well as he has on the technical side for 60 70 minutes and i was i was certainly skeptical on that but he's been he's been really good uh right and and, 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 he, what, and what about jp eloff i mean how great was it to see him just sort of sparkle like that look i've been on his job strap since the first <laughs> time i saw him play so <laughs> i don't know if uh, you want to phrase I, it I but totally phrasing. Under, i mean jp's a stud he's i mean he's not uh, Dan Carter, right? But he's uh, there are certain people who have like you know we talk about I've talked about Max Ayashwal a lot. The guy who's just like a, a gamer. Well, JP happens to be a gamer and also have a lot of those athletic abilities that you're just kind of born with. Um, so you know, I'm, I, I was a little surprised to see him go this long without being involved at least in the seventh program. Um, and even though this long is, I mean, we're not even a year from his graduation. Still surprised he wasn't snatched up by the uh, the Chulavista group a little quicker, um, but you know, not surprised to see him perform this well. But certainly very excited. You know, while while we were talking about that, I wanted to go back to the U twenty thing because I was doing a little bit of research on uh, the. We talked about the twenty thirteen team. We'll jump back to the Eagles in a second. U twenties uh, on the twenty twelve team that won the Junior World Trophy: Madison Hughes, K- uh, Kingsley McGowan, Mike Teo. Um, also, Cameron Falcon uh, made the the Eagles, and he was also on that team. Uh, a number of players on that squad were players that uh, you'd recognize uh, in in college rugby right now, and being you know just 
doing really well. Uh, the 2013 team that finished last in the, in the Junior World Championships didn't have a lot of those guys, but uh, Dylan Oddsley was on that team, uh, possibly the best player in St. Mary's, one of the, the top players in college rugby. Um, as you said, uh, Cameron Falcon was on that team. Um, as you said, Bruce uh, Moto Filikitonga was on the team. Henry Hall, also an excellent player at St. Mary's. Connor Kearns uh, playing uh, in uh, at Trinity in Ireland. Mike Teo, capped, was on that team. Um, and uh, you know, just, just a lot of other players who have some some potential. You look at it and say, well, I, don't, "I don't have a problem with that." I don't. Uh, have a problem with uh, Vili Tolatau, who's uh, at Central Washington, players like that. So, um, but they didn't do well. Tom Bliss also on that team. In the end, you know, this this is the argument that we had about: is it worth playing the All Blacks and losing by seventy points? Yes, if you can work something, if you can build on it, if you don't just do it and then just send everybody home and they don't learn from it. And I guess that's the big problem. You still have to follow up on it. Uh, that's very important part of it. Uh, but we did have here a Rugby Matrix America brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy, which is some, which is one of the organizations that actually tries to follow up on success at a young age. We did have some guys who projected out, even of a, of a age grade national team that didn't do very well. They still like, like Bruce has been talking about, apples to apples. They still got that international experience. Still was valuable to them. I think we'll see a few more. In fact, and we saw some. Obviously, last couple of weeks we saw Lorenzo Thomas come straight out of the U twenty team uh, to play. Bruce, you had talked about uh, the veterans needing to pick up their game, and it was the youngsters. Uh, or the newer players playing well against Argentina. Um, Bruce, Pat, I, I think that there were uh, some very interesting bright spots. Uh, some from uh, unexpected... And one players. of my takeaways is this front row, you know, going into the World Cup was who the hell is going to play hooker and who's going to be the backup. And I mean, we knew we had Teal, but and we knew we had Fenolio, but there wasn't a lot of excitement there. And I think all of a sudden the front row looks pretty... Uh, like, like there's a bright future with Taufetti, with Sasoni Fiagai, with, um, uh, you know, T.T. Lomasatelli and Eric Fries playing well. Um, all of a sudden, and Al Khalifi is, I think, a, a pretty solid player. It all of a sudden looks like a, a position of strength. Um, so it, you know, I'd, I'd say that the other takeaway from the last couple of games is so does Flyhaf. You know, I would say that James, I'll make a little bit of maybe talk out of school here, but I think James Bird is probably the second best fly half I can remember since I've been following the Eagles. Um, through the two games, I, I feel somewhat confident saying that, that saying that's the case. Um, you know, I, I started paying attention right at the, as Herkus was going out of, uh, you know, on his way out, and uh, I'd take James Bird over any of the number of guys who filled the 10 jersey um, prior to Ash McGinty um, at this point. He's working. He's working on the Mike Herkus hair. Yeah. I notice yeah. that he's he's really trying to have the same kind of hair, and that I, I think it, uh, most people don't realize how important the hairstyle <laughs> is for a fly half, but it's it's critically important. Yeah, maybe that's yeah, it's probably an underrated uh, quality. Scrum didn't yeah. fix, so it got better, but it certainly didn't fix. I think that having TT might help it a bit. The uh, I don't think Hilderman's good enough. And, uh, you know, granted, we saw him for a very short period of time. But you can see just even from uh, a size and athletic standpoint, he's not where the other two guys are. So I, I think that he's – and he's not good enough to be a foreigner, that's for sure. So I think that he's got to probably be sent home to Australia. Um, and and we have to cultivate some – it's one thing when you have a foreigner who's fantastic and, and he's – bringing a lot of noise and that's and that's great then then you can go with a mother than that you know um i'm not going to get into well, this is this is almost a band-aid kind of group isn't it i mean a band-aid and let's just see what they do kind of group you talking there's a lot of american props like ben tar like angus mcclellan who are either injured or unavailable i don't know that they some of these guys i i think it's great that brody orth's playing we may never see brody orth again after the arc um, once they have more availability, some of these guys are are, are going to be one tour ponies just to help fill the gap. And the Hilton brand may be the case. Of course, that's going to be the case. But what you're seeing, though, in the fact that they were able to beat Canada, 
similar to when their frontline players were playing and they were able to beat Canada, that the is it better to have cohesion or to have people in and out? Now, if they're going to play a mapping structure, you don't need as much cohesion than, than you would more with a pod structure, and I think they have a combination of the two. But they, they map, map, map meaning they, they have players on on areas of the field where they're responsible for striking down specific areas. And, and what they generally do is they put their more athletic players into the wider channels and their bigger, more powerful guys into the midfield, and they try to play them. They try to get themselves mismatches on either edge. So that's what mapping means. And then um, – but I thought that the – the uh, and, and the fact that they're running a blitz defense, that takes time and cohesion – to learn how to practice it, it also takes an incredible level of fitness. But what you saw is that is is Brody York and Ben Landry any different than going with um, you know Hayden Smith and and, and, and Hayden Smith? Yeah. Hey, hey, well, I mean, I, I was kind of underwhelmed with Smith personally. I mean, it's like you know, is is Brody York the new Graham Harriman and and. You know, he's a guy that you know is always going to be there because he he lives in the Midwest and he's he's desperate well, I, to play. Uh, will work really hard. But how do you uh, feel about you know, if Tammy Lau is you know capable of playing eight at a high level? How do you feel about Manoa and uh, and uh, Peterson in your second row? It's, it's, that doesn't look too bad, does it? It's not a matter of saying whether you want Manoa and Peterson to be in your second row. It's a matter of is it is it better to chop and change, or is it better to say these are the guys that are here and have cohesion. Like I think it's funny because you were talking about, you know, we need brothers this and Islanders that, and we need the best players we could possibly have for the U-20s, whereas we pick the guys who run the drills better. I think you're almost going the opposite direction here. No, 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 no. You, you, got, you have it absolutely, you have it completely opposite. Because of the college commitment that they have so that, you know, basically college, when you get a political science degree or an English degree, what are you going to do with it? Well, I'm going to teach political science and I'm going to teach English. And then, so basically college is... For enterprise rental cars, what you're going to do. Well, basically, basic college is Amway with a track team. So, and so it's, it's, it's a complete scam. So I would, I would venture to say that these players, if you get players who don't have to go to class, quote unquote, so they can they can be indoctrinated in the in the nonsense of statism and liberalism, that they can they can now focus on rugby and gain cohesion and become a team. That's what I think. That's more valuable. It's certainly more valuable. Look, I. I, I I disagree. I mean, I, in the Argentina game, who was the best player? I think it was Paco Nguyen. And as Alex opened up this conversation with, who was it? It was Luke Hume. And I don't think you're going to talk about continuity and cohesion with either one of those players. I know Taco's been back for a little while, right? But Hume hadn't been around in years, and Taco had been gone for quite a while before he'd come back. Okay. So I, I, I'll take an impact player for one or two or three games if that's all we can get him for. Granted, I think we need to get to a point where we need to have more guys over cohesion. Well, we're not getting cohesion at uh, Scrum Half, right? Yeah, Bruce, what about the Scrum House, uh, musical Scrum House a little bit, uh, uh, Kruger, Tail, and then Bliss, um, and they all seem, I don't know if they all seem kind of different, but they're, they're, they're relatively different players. Yeah, they're definitely different. Obviously, Kruger has the best kicking game, I would say. Bliss is probably the most complete player in that he's been in the environment to be able to hone a lot of the different skills, and he's he's got that combination of physicality and skill that is would be the difference between Kruger and uh, and Teo. Teo's not a conventional scrum half, and I think that he'll get badly exposed when they play better teams unless they can really work on his body height and staying low over the ball when he passes and having a having a multitude, a different range of, of skills in passing. But they need to find somebody that, uh, depending on 
I know Petri thinks he has some legs left in him, and I and I would agree with that in that his 31-year-old legs are only 27 because, like I said, he's lived a relatively clean lifestyle. But that all said, he also has a baby and other stuff. So depends on whether or not the timing works. And so I think I think they're in a in a good situation in terms of finding a scrum half, and I think it's going to be more between Bliss and and uh, and Kruger. You you were talking about Teo being. I mean, he he handles himself relatively well in contact. I think you're right about it. he sort of stands straight up. He picks the ball and then he stands straight up. But I mean, he's he's played hooker. He's played uh, you know he's played all kinds of different positions, and he played fullback against Chile, where I thought he did all right. Um, but he does. He seems to be able to handle himself in one of those games if he's getting bad ball and there's a lot of traffic swarming around. He can do okay. Taylor's a tough physical guy and he's a tough physical scrum half. It's he just doesn't have he doesn't have the polish that I think you're going to need as you play teams that are higher ranked than you. It's one thing to play teams that are a little bit lower ranked than you. It's another thing to play teams that are higher ranked and and though. Those kind of things will get exposed. What they'll do is they'll have the pillars or the first defender around the ruck. They'll just rush that guy up, and they'll and they'll really kind of take away some of his options in, in running. They'll start to they'll start to be able to blitz down or, or crack down a little bit in defense because as your scrum half runs, you kind of take away the wide game. So there's certain things that. Teo just isn't going to really bring to the table unless they work with his skill set, which they can do that. I mean, obviously he's a, a multiple skilled player who can do a lot of different things and, and do them really effectively. But what Teo does bring is that physicality at the end of the line out. They use, they use the defender at the end of the line out, the tail gunner, similar to the way the all black shoes, Aaron Smith, whereas most teams would use another flanker there. So, Teo would do that the best. I think Bliss does that the second best, and and uh, Kruger would do that the worst. But Kruger also has a great pass, and he's got a a strong kicking game. We'll see. See what they what they choose it, to it, do. It, it's interesting that between Kruger and Bliss, though. Interesting. Kruger uh, was singled out for uh, kind of you know running off the tail of the line out and making a big tackle that was uh, um, an important one for the USA. Um, the 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 thing about Teo, and I mentioned it a couple of times now, I guess, is does he have to be anything, or is, is he just? Uh, I mean, he can be this great utility guy who can play almost anywhere, which um, I think he can. I, I'd kind of like. That's a that's a difficult thing to practice with because you don't yeah. you don't have the ability to gain cohesion anywhere, and you really become a, a jack of all trades, master of none. And they they would have players who can play in different spots. The thing about Kruger is certainly not an afraid player. He played at Kutztown and, and Doc's not going to put up with anybody who doesn't play a physical brand of rugby, but it's how many hits does he have in him? Uh-huh. Teo has a game full of hits and then he can go three days later and have another game full of hits. And you're not going to hurt that guy. That's, that's like trying to hurt a, you know, a bowling ball in front of a yeah. garbage. Well, that's that's the thing. In an emergency, you say, you know, well, we we've got some issues and injuries and stuff like that, and you know, at Teo, fullback, it's like, okay, I put the fifteen on, I'll be a fifteen. That's that's uh, that's fine. Uh, you know, mixing all this stuff up, that, that's the one position where they've really been shifting them around. They did shift around uh, with uh, uh, fly half a little bit. Uh, it comes down to Chile. Seems like Chile. I mean, I, I really think they hit a they hit a wall a little bit, um, but you know this this sixty four nothing win, uh, which has put the USA in position to actually win the ARC because Argentina didn't get a bonus point against Uruguay. Um, I, I, I'm still struggling to figure out what to make of it. Um, it's it, I think it's it's just too easy to jump on a a blowout bandwagon and say. Wow, that that they're they're great now. Well, they're certainly not great, but they're starting to they're gaining a little bit of cohesion. Chile wasn't a particularly strong side, but sixty four nothing. The the key in that being nothing. They didn't give up they didn't give up points. And you know, all you have to do to give up points is commit a penalty in your own half, 
I mean, you can catch a kickoff and have a guy in front and and get called for a penalty. The guy kicks three points or they kick a corner and drive one in. And, and that's not an unusual thing to have happen against what's considered to be a lesser side. So while the U.S. was the far superior side, they had the discipline to score 64 points. They had the discipline to add a little bit of a lull in the game, but then they came back and they started the fire again. The the try that, I don't know that Teo scored it, but it was a pretty good play by Teo at fullback that would kind of bounce around and they, there was a bunch of different offloads. And Oh, that, that went to Edwards. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a really nice try. And, and so they showed, they, they've been showing some decent skill. They've, they're, they're starting to get better. I, again, it's going to remain to be seen whether how they play against quote unquote better teams. But the fact of the matter is they're still playing well and you can only play the team that's put in front of you. And the team that's put in front of them, they're doing well. Like we, we can talk until we're purple. Very few people outside of camp thought they were going to tie Argentina. Um, True. Probably would be a 50-50 that they were going to beat Canada. But I think Canada had as much of an upheaval as we did. So they, but they, so they, they, they beat Canada, and, and they made it a fourth in a row. That's a high-pressure situation to, to win your fourth game in a row against a team that you've never done that to. Granted, did it on home soil. It was not, hey, look, great. Congratulations. And again, something relatively unexpected. Then they play Chile. And Chile has been very good at under-20 level over the, over the past many years and maybe hasn't been as good quite, quite recently. But they have been very good in the past. And we wiped them out. Yeah, can't take away the all the points count, regardless of when you score them. It's an eighty-minute game, and everything counts in every game. I, people, you know, no, no, no. That's, that's I, I think that's well taken, and you know they've they've got to do well. Um, we're recording this before they play Brazil. They got to do well against Brazil. I, I I think it's a small-ish test, but but the the next big test is Uruguay. I mean, this is Uruguay's beaten the United States once. Uh, uh, in Montevideo, and the last time they played in Montevideo, it was a 27-27 tie, and that was a game with pretty much all their the USA's big guns playing in it, um, and it was 27-27. So um, we can't just we can't just say it's automatic. Well, it's not a smallish test. It's a very important test because they're going to Montevideo, which is a very difficult place to play, regardless of the situation and the circumstances. Montevideo is a very difficult place to play. And they're not going down at particularly full strength as people are are coming off tour further and further in. So it's going to be a greater challenge and people who have, who have stepped up and, and, and played well over this period are going to have to continue to do it. A lot of guys can play well in first thing and they're very excited. And now, you're down in Montevideo, it isn't quite as exciting or as quite as awesome as being at home. And the crowd can be hostile. The situation and circumstances can be hostile. The good thing is, is that the management team will have at least had that kind of experience in the past. They, they will have seen what would have been hostile environments in, in that they would have been, you know, Mitchell would have experience in the Pacific Islands. They, they would have experience doing things in places and or in a part of what they do in South Africa. They would have experience in places that maybe weren't necessarily the most uh, user-friendly places to be. So that I don't think that'll be a, a big deal, but it's still going to be a big deal for the players. And they're going to have to keep the players grounded and not get ahead of themselves and say, man, if we can just do – they just have to play one game at a time, one play at a time, one half at a time. And and really just stay in the moment, and then the next thing they know, it'll be over. And then, then it'll be fine, and you evaluate it then. If they start to get ahead of themselves and worry about, oh, we got a bonus point, we can beat Argentina, and like, just play yeah. the game, win the game, worry about the bonus points. Don't, don't get 
don't get caught up in being whistled at. Don't being caught get caught up in being booed. It is a hostile environment in a good sporting way. But if you watch the uh, the games that have been played there already, and you listen to the vociferous whistling and hooting during penalty goal attempts, I mean that's just the way they do it. And uh, and if you get sh- shaken up by that, um, you know whoever's practicing kicks. Uh, for the USA, I think the the guys on the sidelines should be hooting and hollering and uh, trash talking them the whole way. Got to get them used to it. Well, I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> Got to remember that <laughs> these guys are these guys are big boys, and it's not. It's, it's still a, it's still a shock if you're used to everybody going shush 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 and everybody's being super quiet. It is still a huge shock to suddenly have it be different. The reality is that an international goal kicker puts things out of his head and just kicks the ball. And I think that that's, that'll be the case for whoever's kicking will just kick the ball. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I would be, I think that what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to man up in the scrum. They're going to have to man up in the driving line out and they're going to have to deal with Last time I saw Uruguay play, now I didn't watch them in the World Cup, but I did watch them in the uh, in the qualifier matches. They do play a physical rush, kind of play a poor man's version of the Wolfpack defense from from the Saracens. So the U.S. is going to have to find a way to snake into crevices there, and, and they're going to have to find a way either around it or or through it, and that that's going to be more difficult than than normal, maybe. So it'd be good if they can get punch some big, get a couple of tries early, and then open them up and force the the uh, the other guys to what do you call it? The Uruguayans to chase the game. Chase. You need the Uruguayans chasing the game. Can't let them get their tails up. And then after halftime, they got to pump another. They got to pump it again. They just got to make sure. Hey. Just in case you thought you're coming back into this, you're not. And then, then you just rip their will out. Well, that that's going to be the key. Is that they're going to have to start to take away the will of the other team to compete. And that's that's what they did to Chile. They they took away their will to compete. Well, I think I've lost my will to continue this show. Uh... A really good show. Uh, it's very exciting to see the, the USA team that we didn't expect to do some things, doing some things. U20 team, same deal. I guess it's a, a show all about expectations and how expectations uh, can be exceeded. Uh, and hopefully we've exceeded a few expectations for you here on this episode of Rugby Matrix America. Brought to you by Eagle Impact Rugby Academy. Check out iTunes for past shows. Check out RuggerMatrix.com for the international show and this show. Golf Rugby Report, that's where I write. You'll see this show there too. And you can go slash tags slash Ruggamatrix and uh, you'll be able to uh, see the other shows. Um, for Bruce McLean and Pat Clifton, uh, this is Alex Goff thanking you for listening to Rugga Matrix America. Go Eagles.